back to the Rights and Liberties podcast where we are discussing the Federalist Papers. Today we will talk about Federalist 69. We often begin these podcasts with three big ideas. Here are three big ideas from Federalist 69. Big idea one. In Federalist 69, Hamilton contrasted the qualified character of the president's veto under the Constitution with the absolute character of the veto possessed by the British monarch, as well as with the veto power of the governor of New York. Big idea two. Hamilton also contrasted in Federalist 69 the powers and matters concerning war of the British monarch with those of the American president. Big Idea 3. Hamilton focused in addition in Federalist 69 on the joint character of appointments to important office as a way to understand the powers of the presidency in the context of powers of other analogous executive offices. Now, Federalist 69 is focused on one main argument. Comparing the president, as described in the Constitution, to the occupants of other executive offices, in particular, the King of England and the Governor of New York. As we have seen in several different essays, those arguing against the Constitution were particularly concerned about the executive and the possibility of tyranny stemming from the executive branch. This fear of tyranny, of course, had rhetorical roots in the Revolution. Taking the Federalist Papers as a whole, one sees two different kinds of argument about the executive branch, one holding that among the new government's improvements over the Articles would be its greater dynamism, expressed especially by the executive branch, the other holding that the powers of the executive under the Constitution would neither threaten liberty nor create the possibility of tyranny. These arguments aren't opposites. This isn't some sort of straightforward contradiction. But they are different arguments, and maintaining both sometimes requires a measure of dexterity. On the whole, Hamilton in Federalist 69 sought to highlight the similarity of the president's powers with those of the New York governor, and contrast the president's powers with those of the British monarch, and in so doing to support an argument that the president was unlikely to become a tyrant. The three big ideas we examine here are different elements of this overall argument. Big idea one refers to the veto power. Just to recall, in the U.S. Constitution, the President has the power to veto bills passed by Congress, but Congress may override the veto with a two-thirds majority in each House. Hamilton contrasted this power of the President with the veto power both of the British monarch and of the Governor of New York, quoting Hamilton here, quote, The qualified negative of the President differs widely from this absolute negative of the British sovereign and tallies exactly with the revisionary authority of the Council of Revision of this state, of which the governor is a constituent part, end quote. Remember that the phrase, this state, refers to New York. There were further details that Hamilton addressed. The British monarch's veto power was, on Hamilton's account, more a matter of constitutional theory than actual practice, and the New York governor's veto power was shared with other state officials. The main point here remains, and illustrates the kind of argument on offer in Federalist 69. If you were worried about tyranny from the presidency, bear in mind the differences between the chief executive in the USA and the chief executive in Britain, and some similarities of the US president with the governor of New York. Big Idea 2 refers to the role of the president as commander-in-chief. After briefly observing that the president would have less power than the British monarch or the New York governor, with respect to command over the militia, Hamilton turned to other questions of military leadership. The president's role as commander-in-chief seemed to Hamilton to confer less power than the analogous role occupied by the British monarch. Speaking of the president, 
Hamilton said this, quote, In this respect, his authority would be nominally the same with that of the King of Great Britain, but in substance much inferior to it. It would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces, as first general and admiral of the Confederacy, while that of the British king extends to the declaring of war and to the raising and regulating of fleets and armies, all which, by the Constitution under consideration, would appertain to the legislature." End quote. When Hamilton compared the situation of the president to that of the New York governor, he saw the New York governor as likely possessing less power than the president in this regard, but thought other states might vest more military power in the chief executive, observing that, quote, it may well be a question whether those of New Hampshire and Massachusetts, in particular, do not, in this instance, confer larger powers upon their respective governors than could be claimed by a president of the United States, end quote. After discussions of other powers, notably including the treaty-making power and the pardon power, Hamilton turned to the topic of Big Idea 3, the question of presidential appointments. After an overview of the president's role in appointments for important offices in the federal government, emphasizing the Senate's role in advice and consent, Hamilton pointed to the relevant contrast both with the British government and with the government of New York, quoting Hamilton on this point, quote, The King of Great Britain is emphatically and truly styled the fountain of honor. He not only appoints to all offices, but can create offices. He can confer titles of nobility at pleasure and has the disposal of an immense number of church preferments. There is evidently a great inferiority in the power of the president in this particular to that of the British king, nor is it equal to that of the governor of New York if we are to interpret the meaning of the constitution of the state by the practice which is obtained under it." End quote. This last point about New York reflected both some uncertainty on Hamilton's part about the formal right of the governor to offer such nominations, and his belief that influence of the governor on such questions in New York would be a function of the smaller scale of the bodies making such appointments. In bringing together the elements of his argument in Federalist 69, Hamilton closed by pointing to salient differences between Britain under monarchy and the USA under the Constitution with respect to the chief executive, starting with the term of office, four years for the president, versus the king's status as a, quote, perpetual and hereditary prince, end quote. The end of Federalist 69 lent support to the claim that the creation of the presidency under the Constitution was not intended to create an office resembling that of a monarch, in part by pointing to distinctive privileges of the British monarch. Quoting Hamilton on this point, quote, The one can confer no privileges whatever. The other can make denizens of aliens, noblemen of commoners, can erect corporations with all the rights incident to corporate bodies. The one can prescribe no rules concerning the commerce or currency of the nation. The other is in several respects the arbiter of commerce, and in this capacity can establish markets and fairs, can regulate weights and measures, can lay embargoes for a limited time, can coin money, can authorize or prohibit the circulation of foreign coin. The one has no particle of spiritual jurisdiction, the other is the supreme head and governor of the national church. What answer shall we give to those who would persuade us that things so unlike resemble each other? The same that ought to be given to those who tell us that a government, the whole power of which would be in the hands of the elective and periodical servants of the people, is an aristocracy, a monarchy, and a despotism. End quote. We often close these podcasts with a brief reference to the relevance of the essay under review to the politics of the present and the future. 
At the very opening of Federalist 69, Hamilton pointed to tenure of office as important to judging the distinctiveness of the president, quoting Hamilton here, quote, that magistrate is to be elected for four years and is to be re-eligible as often as the people of the United States shall think him worthy of their confidence. In these circumstances, there is a total dissimilitude between him and a king of England, who is an hereditary monarch, possessing the crown as a patrimony descendable to his heirs forever. But there is a close analogy between him and a governor of New York, who was elected for three years and is re-eligible without limitation or intermission. End quote. The question of re-eligibility for office was addressed in the Constitution through the 22nd Amendment. The president is still elected to a four-year term, but now can only be re-elected to the presidency once. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties Podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit our website at sunwater.org.